This is the Average Guy Network, and you found Home Gadget Geek show number 300. We made it all the way to 300, and Christian's back. Mm-hmm. Recorded on March 9th, 2017. Here at HomeNet Gadget Geeks, we cover all the favorite tech gadgets that find their way into your home. News, reviews, product updates, and conversation, all for the average tech guy. I'm your host, Jim Collison, broadcasting live from the Average Guy TV studios here in Bellevue, Nebraska. Actually, snowy. Snow is on its way. It's dipping in temperatures right now as we speak. And, of course, we post the show with world-class show notes each week. Not too many this week, but we normally do out at TheAverageGuy.tv. You can also join us on our live mobile app if you're out on the road and you want to get Home Gadget Geeks on your phone. We have mobile apps for you, both Android and iPhone. Just head over to the average guy. No, that's not the site. Head over to homegadgetgeeks.com, and uh, we've got a special page set up for you right there. Big buttons, just hit iPhone, Android, whatever, right? Get get you in there. Download that. We'll thank LastPass for their sponsorship of that app, and it's the easiest way to stream it live right off Spreaker. That's available for you, homegadgetgeeks.com. And again, we'll thank LastPass for their sponsorship of that app. We now have a Patreon link as well if you want to financially support the show. Although tonight, the best way to financially support the show is to head over to Maple Grove Partners and start some kind of web hosting. If you've been thinking about doing that, either podcasting or just a website of your own, a blog, whatever, one of those kinds of things, Christian and Maple Grove Partners got some great plans over there for you. They start as inexpensively as $10 a month. And that's what you're seeing here at home. It's uh, TheAverageGuy.tv. That's all hosted and even HomeGadgetGeeks.com. Uh, is powered by Maple Grove Partners. So head over there, check it out. Love to have you kind of in the family, so to speak. And Christian kind of likes to keep that in the family in a lot of ways. Uh, MapleGrovePartners.com. And if you want to support me financially, head over to TheAverageGuy.tv and click on the Patreon link. Christian, welcome back. Thanks. I don't even know when the last official number was that I've been on this side of the aisle for tag. So uh, it's great to be here for the big 300. And... uh, yeah, I'm loving it. Crazy to think December uh, 2010, I think. Let's see, we're in 2017. No, 2011, I think it was. We uh, we got together and we thought, hey, let's start our own podcast. We yeah. had you back, I think. The last time we had you back was December of, let's see, what, because uh, when we did, when we did, um, when was that last year? I don't know. No, it's the five-year mark is what, oh, that's when right. we did that. That would have been so December last year. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was just December of last year yeah. when we had you on, and we kind of talked through, you know, remembering five years of podcasting. If you head out to the Facebook group, and whether you're listening live or you're listening recorded, uh, we're kind of looking at uh, favorite episodes. Uh, just uh, we won't spend a lot of time thinking about it, but it's kind of fun to involve. I put a, I put a, um, I put a survey on the page, and if you want to take a few minutes to think kind of think back. We've done some crazy things here uh, on the show. Some of the things uh, that has shown up, you know, I uh, right out there right now, Zadler came on to talk about his train. Zadler was always good. We tried to get him back on tonight and I couldn't, I couldn't track him down in time, but um, Zadler was great uh, for, for those in those early days. Of course, uh, Brian Burgess joined us and, uh, and, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, we had Andrew uh, here for a lot of years, um, yeah. who got us through on a lot of things. Um, Christian probably lasted longer than anybody else from that standpoint, sticking with it. Gary joined us for a while. Gary, Christian's dad, um, joined us for a few episodes. Uh, what Mike Weger, who will be back, I think he'll be back next week. 
uh, joined as a co-host as well. So you think about 300 episodes. Christian, any any thoughts about, uh, I remember your dad launched that word um, fablet that I never heard before. I mean, now we think of that, like that's, right. that's old news, but we really hadn't talked about early, the early days of phones when they were getting big. And he, and I remember him saying fablet and I remember thinking that's genius. That's yeah. genius. Any pretty prophetic stuff <laughs> <laughs> considering most people at the time weren't even willing to consider that screen sizes would get north of five inches and that the average person would actually want something like that. And that it was just some fantasy for technologists. And now everyone's carrying around like an iPhone seven plus or a galaxy note. Um, and it's just a whole wave of computing that um, was definitely foreshadowed on the show. And um, to the point where I, I remember him talking about prototype phablets where your phone would literally be what snapped into the keyboard and became the computer itself. And all the, all the tablet interface would be was the screen and the keyboard and that the phone itself would be powerful enough to be its own brain to serve as both a tablet and as a phone. So he uh, was way out in front of that market, which was kind of cool to see. Yeah, well, and I and I think we're still headed that way, don't you think? From a gadget standpoint, I, I mean, I I was on the plane this week. I was out in D.C., and I don't even open my laptop anymore. If I'm going to connect to Wi-Fi, I have that Microsoft um, keyboard yeah. that's got the rubber top, and you just pull it off, and it makes a tent, and you put your phone on there and type away and. I can really get a lot of work done, including watching TV and watching movies. And it's tougher to get to connect like the Plex and to YouTube. They're making that harder and harder to get that done on the plane. But don't you think as we look ahead here, we're still, I mean, our phones become our computers for most of what we do, don't you think? Yeah, no, I, I think that's increasingly becoming the case. I mean, I'm now wearing a, a Moto 360 smartwatch that goes with my phone. And I didn't think that would be all that useful. And now I just, I, I use it almost more than the phone. Um, so all these kind of smaller devices, I think, are really changing the way we do computing because a lot of the information in the communication exchange can happen right over those devices. We can extend the battery. Um, they're getting more and more powerful. I think it'll be really cool the day that phones uh, start coming out as x86 architectures instead of ARM architectures, and you know, then you can run actual native applications that you would see on a desktop in your phone. I think we're still a ways off from that type of unified architecture, but I mean, think about what Microsoft was trying to do with Windows 8 when it first was getting baked. That was the whole idea was a uniform um, architecture. Now that obviously fell through in a lot of the implementation, but the vision was kind of there. It was almost like the software was ahead of the hardware in some ways, um, not to mention that they had issues with their software. Um, but, you know, by and large, moving towards converged platforms for consumers and then uh, moving towards converged platforms for large computational workflows where you're likely to put your compute power out on some type of cloud service and not even bother to run your own data center. So we're really kind of going back from a decentralized computing model where everyone wants to do stuff locally on their desktop back to kind of a converged cloud and single device model, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I was listening to uh, one of the shows this week. I can't remember, but it seems like they're, that, uh, that our friends making ARM chips are making a run at the server farm. Uh, it, that seems like ARM chips run significantly more efficient, cooler, 
yeah, they're not as powerful, but you could probably put two together to get one Intel chip, uh, at least the power of it at maybe a tenth. I think that's kind of what I heard of the tenth of the power consumption. It's not great for everything, but there are things for, for, do you see, do you see yourself? Do you see the battle between ARM and Intel? I mean, Intel's really never gotten very efficient, right? Their chips are big and bulky and hot and heavy and, and they're, they're getting oh, better. They're well, getting better with them, but I, d- I disagree. But ARM and, a, go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I guess in the mobile space, that's true. But like, if you look at a desktop or a regular laptop, Intel runs really cold. I mean, cold. Oh, true. true. Um, at, the, at the desktop level, sure. That's, now, yeah. now they do. They haven't always, right? They've, that's they've true. had their heat problems. But like when we compare that to AMD, um, it's even like farther removed, right? So AMD has traditionally been the heat bore of the desktop. And so, um, you know, when you combine that with uh, the convert, you know, three platforms, ARM, Intel, AMD, AMD has traditionally run the hottest. Um that's actually changing itself uh, with this new AMD Ryzen platform is really shaking the market up. Um, the new top line Ryzen chip can match and in some cases exceed the performance of the top Intel line chip right now. The only difference is the top Intel CPU costs 1050 for their i7 premium model and the Ryzen goes for 389 and it's out benching. So that's really exciting to see that AMD actually pulled off a comeback and is forcing Intel's prices down. So I think um, we're still seeing a lot of great market competition, which drives how these chips get smaller and cheaper and more affordable. So it's really nice to see that there are still, AMD still has their head in the game because for a while I was convinced that they were they were done. Um, and when we look at Intel, um, you know, the Intel Atom CPU is supposed to, I think, be a big driver into the market share of what ARM has. Never really quite got there. It really kind of evolved into being like the CPU for tablet, but it never really became the CPU for phone. And so ARM really dominates in the embedded space in a way that most don't. Um, and I, I don't think that's going to change in the near term. And I agree with you. You can run ARM Snapdragon quad-core CPUs at a lot smaller and cheaper die size than what you are in Intel. But they're different architectures and they're inherently different. But I don't think it's fair to characterize Intel as being bulky and hot because they run these super small nanometer dies for desktops. They jam in 16 cores and then they jam in 32 cores in the same amount of space. So they're doing it. It's just at what scale they're doing it is kind of different. So... Um, that's kind of where I'm, Yeah. when we look at the CPU market, independent of the devices, um, that's, that's where I'm at. Well, and we know Windows is making a run at some x86 architecture on top of ARM. So, you know, our traditional x86 model, but you're basically in a, in, in some kind of virtualization. That's probably not the right emulator is probably a better way of saying it you're going to be able to run some of these x86 traditional apps on top of ARM. And, you know, who knows whether that's the direction they're going full-time or not, if they're just trying to put a little pressure on Intel to say, hey, guys, you know, we we can do this on ARM too. Now they went down that path with Windows 8 and the, the original RT, and that we all know how that ended not very well. But, um, you know, it's interesting to see Microsoft kind of moving in this direction to kind of at least flirting with it. We'll see if it actually turns out to be anything. Uh, today, I think anybody that's buying a laptop or, 
or what's going to most of them are going to land on Intel. Some are going to buy some AMD and that good to hear the price difference. And maybe there's a competitor there. AMD has never really been taken seriously for yeah. the most part by the average consumer. I, I think, you know, that, that may or may not change. Um, I mean, I think the desktop is huge. You're talking a, a difference of $600 to run the same computational workflow. That's a big deal. But the PC market has been kind of trained, don't you think, that, so say it's a seven or $800 Core i7 and it's a $400 AMD chip and they run it, they have the same specs, but that there's that much of a difference. Don't you think the average consumer still discounts it? Because it's an AMD and that they've been... Yeah, yes and know. no. I think like the gamer desktop rigs and the people who are building from parts up might evaluate it a little more serious. I think at the very least, it's fair to say that Intel is being forced to drop prices on a lot of their mid-range CPUs as a result of this. So at the end of the day, um, the uh, overall efficacy of you know a laptop to market is going to be at a lower price point now. Um and I think you're right. Like traditionally, I, I've always avoided laptops that have AMD CPUs because I feel like they um, they have a half-life that's not as associated with Intel CPUs, um, especially when you're looking at like integrated graphics and stuff. Like I'd, I'd feel much safer with an Intel integrated graphics and CPU than an AMD in a laptop environment traditionally. But like my desktop, I've had since... 2010, I'm a dinosaur, I know, and I still run Windows 7, and I'm laughing at all you guys because you guys think Windows 10 is great, and then they announced that they now run ads right in Windows Explorer, so my prediction about Windows 10 becoming a cloud operating system that you have no control over is becoming more and more true, and they're just slowly slipping and enabling these features and seeing how many of you are actually paying attention. Um, so, Which is true, by the way. They, yeah. they, are, they are doing ads in, in, in Windows Explorer. So it sucks to be that person. Um, <laughs> well, or ignore it. One of the two. Well, yeah. So I have the uh, AMD, uh, what's it called? Oh, gosh. I don't remember what the code it's name been a while, is. It's been a while. It's the AMD FX 8350. It's the eight-core Black Edition CPU for the AM3 and AM3 Plus chip line. And I've had that. Well, I've had this motherboard, Crosshair 4 Formula, since 2010. It's my, I've had this install of Windows 7 since 2010, and um, pretty much uh, at one point I upgraded the CPU from, I think I had like a Phenom 2 black, and then I upgraded it to the 8-core black when it came out. The, the Vis I think it was called Vishera FX. I think that was the core name. And it's been a great desktop. I mean, I haven't had to worry about it. Granted, I have a liquid cooler on here, so I don't worry about heat. I don't have any fans. Um, I have the, um, I'm running an AMD graphics card right now. It's like not the best in the world. It's not the worst in the world. It's the old uh, 6950 cards and Crossfire. So yeah, it's old gear, but I really have not found a compelling application where I'm like, oh, my desktop is so slow. I got to build, right? And you know, I got a one terabyte SSD and it runs fine for what I need this to do. Maybe part of that is the fact that I'm SSHing and moving into so many other workstations that I use this more like a head client, but I still run some fairly beefy SDKs and game engines and, you know, it works fine for what I use it for. Now, I'm sure there are plenty of desktop platforms that will smoke this out of the water, but I've gotten a lot of mileage for being seven years in on this platform and not really seeing any major performance issues with it. So, yeah, I remember when you built that. 
And, yeah. and well, didn't we call it flamethrower? Or didn't yeah, we you? call it flamethrower. That's flame what it was called. Fan cooling. I still have <laughs> it called that, but uh, I guess now with liquid cooling, it's a little bit less of a flamethrower. Yeah. Yeah. Does it put out much heat in the room there? Do you guys find? Do you have any problems nah, when it gets warmer? It, it's really ever since I put the liquid cooler on it, it doesn't do it nearly as much as when you, we used to have the fan on it. You're not in the freshman dorms anymore either. Right. Right. So. <laughs> remember the freshman dorms oh i remember them <laughs> literally that thing heated the place up like there was like no in the middle if the desktop was on it was at least five to ten degrees warmer so so christian i'm i'm running a 3770 i7 i think it's two years old yeah maybe uh yeah. say i'm gonna upgrade today um do i do i take a serious look at at, at amd and their their high-end processors or do i yeah. do i go with the the newest core i7 i think it depends what you want to do with it i mean if you're looking to use the same motherboard and just upgrade the cpu for the time being obviously you're going to want, have to stay in intel if you're looking to like drop in a new uh chipset motherboard cpu ram etc um i think ryzen is competitive uh, i have yet to really look in detail at the thermal design and what are the major differences with the um with the um the the intel and versus amd but at least from like a raw performance perspective they both look like great platforms um i would be curious to see what the power draw is especially given that um you know you like my amd box for example probably draws more power than a good number of intel boxes so like you might pay you might pay for the cost in the long run by way of your electric bill um that being said there are the new so a lot of the new Ryzen chips are at 65 watt TDP, and I think this chip that I have is either a 95 watt or a 120 watt. Uh, it's black edition, so it might be juicier. Um, but they have really lowered them a lot in terms of overall wattage and output. So I think it's worth looking at. Um, I think a lot of people who are all Intel up until this point really um, will continue to stay there, but I. Generally, um, I think it has a little more potential. If, if you're creative and it's a non-essential system or it's you know something that you're open to experimenting with, I certainly don't think you're going to be disappointed. It's just going to be a difference in the way that you're you're used to in your set Intel ways with your Intel RAID drivers and your Intel benchmarks, and might freak you out a little bit being a first-time AMDer, but. Um, I love just having one AMD box lying around amongst a fleet of Intel, which is kind of what I've been doing. Yeah, I always used to have an AMD box too. I think it's been three, four, five years maybe since I've had one. Everything's Intel on the desk today. Right. Um, I, I'm not really in an upgrading mood at this yeah. point, but um, um, you're just thinking about it. I mean, it's, it's interesting. We haven't really had a solid PC discussion in a while. When we think I was, I can't remember who I was talking to the other day. Maybe it was when we had Mike Howard on. On uh, I did ask podcast coach, and we just replayed that here um, on on Home Gadget Geeks. But uh, you're thinking today, Christian, if you're buying in your so to buy, we talked about processors in your mind with memory. What's the minimum today? I mean, used to be four gig was kind of the minimum, but is that still hold true for what you think? Or what's eight's the minimum? The hard, eight's the hard minimum. Um, I really find the stuff that I'm doing, I, uh, like this desktop only has 16 and I actually constantly hit up against the wall because I keep 
Um, I don't have any swap file on Windows 7, so I keep all my, even my Windows kernel I keep in memory. Um, so I constantly hit up against my 16 gig RAM if I'm doing like uh, intensive emulators or running VMs. So um, eight is the bare minimum and 32 I think is the sweet spot for desktops right now. And 32. Like, yeah. yeah. And, and at DDR4, 32 is a pretty good price point. And I remember when 32 used to be kind of the most you could get out of most boards. Yep. And uh, and I think Mike said that too. Mike, you can correct me if I'm wrong in the chat room. But um, I, I think 32, it, and maybe, I don't know, I haven't looked price points between 16. I, I think 16's got the bare minimum. You know, if you're going to do anything more, maybe 32. I don't know what the price difference is. I, mean, I, I heard memory was had gone up a little bit price-wise over the last six to 12 months, not quite as cheap as it used to be. Um, but yeah, so uh, Christian, for some of the stuff you're doing, are you running any virtualization locally? I do there? some, yeah, so that, that impacts it. And I do run some emulators for like mobile app development and that kind of stuff. So that does eat up amounts of memory that other people probably aren't using. But that being said, like, I don't know how many people realize that each Chrome tab you have open oh, is like, anywhere from 100 megabytes to 200 megabytes per tab, not counting the core like uh, Chrome like backend, which can load up to like a gig. So if you're like me and you have 50 tabs open all the time, multiply that by 100 meg and uh, you'll quickly realize that five to six gigabytes of your uh, active workspace can just be Chrome tabs and uh, you know, throw in three or four gigs for your OS to run happy, your Outlook, your Spotify, some PDFs. You're easily hitting 16 gigs without really much effort these days. Yeah. Um, Drashna says he says he has a terabyte of RAM just for Chrome. Um, yeah. it, uh, you know, and I'm running here. I've, I rebooted just before the show. Um, I've opened pretty much just what's necessary to run the show with uh, as I open up my, the task manager in Windows 10, 9.7 gig of yep. RAM being taken up. And I probably have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 mm -hmm. or so instances of Chrome open yep. plus what we're running here on the camera. And so that takes up some memory and such. Yeah. And like on Newegg, the low end um, DDR chips from G-Skill, the DDR4 2400, which is a two by eight gigabyte chip goes for 112. So if you wanted to populate 32 gigs of RAM, you're looking at a $220 price tag on the on the low end for DDR4. So that's not terrible, not terrible. honestly. Not terrible. Yeah. No, not pretty reasonable from that when you think about it. You're going to drop three, 400 on your processor as well and probably yep. another 150 to 200 on the board at this point, yep. don't you think? Oh, at least 200, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, so some some interesting, again, it's been a long time since we've talked about the PC. It is kind of fun. We used to have these conversations all the time about uh, yeah. what's going on in the PC. And there's been some changes. I mean, architectures have changed. We had Paul Brarin on last week. He's a big believer in getting as much of that M.2 yeah. stuff. I don't blame him. It's good yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, I think the reality, though, is that... Uh, just like we were talking about converged architectures with devices, we're talking we're we're moving towards converged architectures with desktops. I mean, you look at these motherboards and they do more and more all on the same chip. 
And then we're going to get to a point where, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to see a fundamental shift in the way we do computing to the point where RAM is like the same thing as your hard drive. And, you know, we're just, we're, we're slowly peeling away pieces of the, of the computer as we know it to the point where it really doesn't take that many different devices to have a running operating system anymore. Uh, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, system on a chip will be literally the whole system, don't you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think away in, from that. Yeah, in 10 years, we could easily be at a place where RAM is, is uh, dense enough that, like, let's say you have a terabyte of RAM on your motherboard and a CPU and you have integrated graphics, integrated Ethernet. You literally have your entire computer running on the motherboard. And it's like, yeah, you don't need any peripherals. And I could see that being very real. Uh, possibility. So, and it should run pretty fast. I would imagine at that point. Yeah, right? and I mean, I, like Drash and I'd want a hundred terabytes of RAM too. You know, it's just like <laughs> uh, the more RAM I can get, the the, the happier a camper I am. Uh, so, yeah, that that's going to be one of the big shifts in in computing, I think. And if I had to guess, probably somewhere in the middle between like this and quantum. So, like where we're at now. The midpoint will be like this ubiquitous single platform, high RAM density environments where it's all flash based. And then hopefully we might move into quantum, but I remain skeptical. Yeah, well, we got a ways to go, but oh, they yeah. are making quietly. They're making some pretty good progress behind the scenes. We've kind of gotten distracted with our phones in a lot of way, right? Most of the usage, probably 95% for most people the usage of a computer now is based on their phone. I just, I think a lot of computers are sitting idle, turned on and become bots <laughs> for, <Yep. laughs> for some, some organization in Russia or somewhere around the world. They've become bots. They, they don't even know because uh, they're not using them. And, uh, you know, they're using their phone. Um, we, this audience goes back and forth, right? In fact, we're probably, we are the exception. We spend a lot of time on our computers, but we are the exception by far now, I think, for most people. I, I, I think, Christian, some of my peers don't even use their computers at home for the most part. They might use them at work, but they right. get home and they're just checking their email or whatever off their phone. So yep, um, that that transition has shifted. It, I, I've always wonder, like, what would it take? What's it going to take to get rid of the PC? Or will it ever really truly go away? I mean, as I think in our setup here, you know, hey, we have to have these PCs to podcast. In theory, we could do it off our phones. It wouldn't be great. It, you know, it'd be tough to do what I do today, but it could work. It's one of those things where I think the builders will continue to have desktops for quite some time, but the average consumer more and more will peel off to just working in the mobile world. Yeah. Well, I think what will happen first is the enterprise will go mobile for its for its uh, right. average workers. Yeah. Yeah, for the workforce, for those checking email and doing light stuff. It's a lot more cost effective. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, and it'll all be mobile architecture to begin with. And, right. Um, yeah. So it I think that raises a lot more security issues. So. <laughs> it's a, yeah. Uh, it's a cat and mouse game. No, for sure. Well, um, I was looking at the schedule. We were thinking about you know because this is show three hundred. We're not going to make it a big deal about that. But um, I was looking back to the show we did on April fourth, two thousand thirteen. You, right. me college admissions. Do you remember that? Uh, you remember that show? Yeah. We, because you had just been admitted into the University of Maryland mm -hmm. and we spent a whole hour talking about that process. You actually taught me a lot that night. I took a lot of what we learned and I've applied that to my high school internship program uh, here at Gallup and helping people, helping the students kind of understand what's out there, what's available. Um, 
coming up here may 24th is that the day 22nd Some, 24th something yeah, in there yeah. somewhere in there you're done I'm like done four now. years i'm out Oof. what's wh what do you think from a technology standpoint what do you think you've learned in four years as you've you've, you've gone and i'm not you know, and I'm not thinking about uh, certainly the cybersecurity stuff and some of those things. But when we think about the gadgets that you bring, that you brought, I think we yeah. even talked about it. We did a college gadget show. It's so. evolved a lot. It really has. Yeah. I mean, what, I, where are we at today with gadgets in you than we yeah. were four years ago? So I remember when I started on the freshman dorm, I brought my spare desktop and one external like 22-inch monitor that was crap. And... Um, I think I had a work laptop. That was it for me, really. And my phone. I think my phone when I started was a Note 2. And um, I lasted in that configuration for, uh, I think, almost freshman year. I think I almost got through all freshman year like that. And then definitely by sophomore year, I had moved to, okay, I got to have Flamethrower down here. I'm doing harder workflows, harder computations. I need, I need my my real stuff here and then i moved to dual 24 inch monitors which at the time most people thought that was stupid to have in a dorm i mean most people in the in the dorms had one external monitor at most and that was it then by the next semester everyone in my suite had gone to dual 24 inch monitors so trend setting and uh from there it just kind of multiplied throughout the aces dorm so dual 24 inch monitors is now the standard um, and I went through two iterations of IPS panels. So I'm running a Dell IPS panel off DisplayPort um, for this workstation uh, to this day, and I love it. Um, and I've had these monitors for about a year and a half now. So I got I picked these up in uh, junior year, and then I used the other dual 24 inches that these replaced as my backup workstation. Um, as far as the desktop, it's been flamethrower through and through. So that's been pretty consistent. Um, laptops have really been a crapshoot for me. Um, I've always had work laptops in and out. Um, I've had this lying around that I, I, I tried to make this an integral part of my computing life. This was the $200 um, Windows 10 Lenovo uh, Yoga that I had picked up with the keyboard and the device. And... It got 10 hours of battery life and it was an okay device. Um, it had its quirks, but it was for 200 bucks. So, you know, I'm not gonna complain, um, but I never really got it to the point where I was using it regularly or felt like it was immensely helping me in my life. So it started to collect dust and it never really succeeded for me as a gadget. Um, but there have been devices that really are becoming very popular for me now. So like this year, um, I've started wearing a smartwatch and I used to think they were not going to be very useful and now I can't live without it. Um, what is it? It's a uh, Moto 360. Okay. For, yeah. So th this has been fantastic, really. Um, I've started uh, having a, a wireless Bluetooth headset on me at all times so I can take calls when I'm biking or listen to music or anything like that. Then I can control my Spotify premium for my watch. Um, while I'm listening to, you know, so like it's all the little integration pieces kind of coming together. That's great. Um, another big life enhancer has been having um, Amazon Echo in the room and having Alexa. Um, and I know it sounds stupid, but honestly, just being able to say something like, hey, what's the weather um, 
is trite but awesome all at the same time. So I've really started to use those devices as productivity devices and having it, you know, manage my calendar, give me news, give me like day-to-day kind of briefing stuff where, you know, I just wake up and my my head is still half foggy and then I have the machine remind me who I am and what I'm doing and what my mission on earth is. Um, so really- So have you connected your calendar to it? Oh yeah, I have it all integrated. I went all in. So um, I've given up on wearing tinfoil hats as far as it pertains to gadgets because it's a lost cause. You either use them or you lose them. So um, yeah, I've loved it. Uh, really the combination of um, Echo with uh, the smartwatch, the Bluetooth integrations, and having a phone that can power it all um, has really made for a nice mobile productivity. And I've kind of enjoyed that. Um, And then as far as rest of the computing stuff that I do, having a good VPN wherever I'm at, whether it's VPNing back to Maple Grove or um, VPNing through campus or wherever, having good solid internet, um, always being on a campus where it's gigabit internet obviously is a huge advantage um, that not all other campuses uh, can afford. Um, So that's kind of been where I've been at. It's definitely evolved a lot. The core infrastructure, I would say, has kind of stayed the same, but a lot of the accessorizing has definitely gone into high gear in the last year. Yeah, it's interesting as you look at a four-year program like that, and there's a definitive start and a definitive stop to it, and you can really mark the the transitions, the here's where I was when I began, and here's now where I'm ending, you know, as you move on, you'll lose track of these very clear, like, so when did we do that? And how did that happen? Yeah. And and yet with you, we've been, been able to kind of track through the progress. Much like I think, think about the progress, and maybe we can talk a little bit about this too, with Maple Grove Partners. Right. What does Maple Grove Partners look like in 2013, summer of 2013? what's it look like today? Give us a little, give us a little look back because in between this, we had you on to kind of update two years ago. We had you on to update where Maple Grove Partners was. You've done a bunch of work recently. Talk about the two positions there. Sure. So, I mean, in 2013, we were in this weird alpha prototype mode. I mean, we were using it to host our personal sites, but it wasn't open to the public. It was a closed platform. It was, I called it like a release candidate network where it was kind of on the same fabric as our internal um, R&D networks. And um, we didn't have dedicated uh, bandwidth for it. So it was all running out of the same Fios line. And um, we started on a small cluster of servers. We really went in on virtualization technologies. And the goal was, let's just get all the average guy and BIOS mods. I mean, BIOS mods was getting like 6,000 hits a day. So it really needed more of its own dedicated pool of resources. And, and managing the VPS stuff with a provider that's a pain in the ass and, and the cost associated with it just wasn't worth it. And I, I was getting so tired of managing and dealing with other 1-800 numbers, I really wanted to bring it all house. So at 2013 to 2013 through 2015 was really like the prototype years. Um, we really used it for the average guy, BIOS mods, and a couple other the technology forms that we run and manage. And, um, you know, it, it worked pretty well for what we needed then. Um, it wasn't on an SSD platform. It was being virtualized on older hardware. And the network was a pretty flat network, so it wasn't overtly sophisticated. Um, Today, we run on dedicated Verizon business Fios uh, fiber. 
We have our own um, subnet with them. So we have multiple blocks, uh, static IP addresses to do various types of hosting. Um, we have a production network that is entirely separate from our research network fabric. Um, and we have dedicated uh, hosting resources and virtualized hosting resources. And we've moved to SSD-based platforms. We've moved to the newer Xeon platforms. And we've opened it up to the public. So um, being able to go through maplegrovepartners.com, being able to order hosting and get your own container, um, moving to things like being able to get an SSL certificate for free. Um, and have that auto-managed when most providers are still not able to do that for their customers. Uh, Maple Grove can do it, uh, no problem. Um, so we've really had a lot of growth. It's been nice having it be a public offering that is still really within our community. And I, I really champion that a lot because I don't want it to become this bloaty conglomerate thing that was never the intention. Um, it's really just kind of to support the community and the technological needs of our community without having to say, yeah, go get a GoDaddy account. And then when you hose it up, we'll have someone, you know, log in as you and figure out what went wrong. Um, it's nice to be able to fine grain control the pools, the app sizes, the number of threads, the number of cores, the amount of memory. So we've really gotten that down to a pretty good science. Um, we've got pretty decent backup strategies in place. I think our biggest thing um, in the next year here is um, our failover power. So we can currently fail over for about two hours or so of power disruptions um, before we go black. And we really need to get on a generator to make sure that we can do that long-term uh, sustained approach. It's never really been a problem for the area that we're co-lowing out of. Um, but eventually that's where we have to move to. So that's really the last major thing. When you compare Maple Grove Partners to like another type of shared hosting in terms of the redundancy and what's offered, the only really thing we're missing is having our own gas generator to make sure that we're always fully up. Um, right now we have a series of heavy duty um, batteries and we do measure the draw off of our line so we know how long we can be up for. And on average, we haven't had... Um, we haven't had outages that usually last more than 30 minutes or an hour. Um, in fact, this week, like over 100K people lost power in the area where this is hosted. And so um, we managed to stay up. So that was a nice um, feather. Um, we've used Hyper-V for some of the virtualization capabilities internally. Uh, we have not moved to a Docker world just because we haven't really need to. I've, I've written my own custom containerization strategy for the... the um, the standard website plans. And then if you're on dedicated, you usually either get your own box or your own dedicated pool. Um, and I've been able to manage that through um, Hyper-V pretty well. Um, so, so that's kind of nice. Uh, as far as the MGP backup, no, it's, it's not 42U because we're not running a 42U rack, um, but we are running, I don't remember what the total TDP draw and what the total wattage is of those batteries but um we recently went through a rack reduction exercise and we took about 700 watts uh off uh continuous draw we took cut off I, i'm losing my words we took 700 watts uh per second i think is when it's measured in i don't think it's kilowatt hours but um we basically 
did a hardware refresh and tried to knock down what our total draw was. And we were able to take 700 watts off in our last reduction. And we're planning to do another phase two power reduction probably by the end of this year. So we've really gotten to a pretty efficient platform and that's allowed us to be able to stay up longer on battery when we need to. Have you um, any, any thoughts? Uh, did you mention, I thought I heard you say this, but co-location. So have you guys thought about if something failover or, you know, th that yeah. kind of stuff? We're um, thinking about setting up a colo for Maple Grove in the DC area in 2018. Um, so that if the whole uh, Maple Grove origin site goes out, we do have um, a colo on um, DC fabric, which like Northern Virginia and Maryland have some of the fastest pipes in the world when it comes to internet. So it's a nice place to have a failover colo. Um, I might pony up some cash to actually buy a private uh, data center space to do that colo. Uh, I haven't quite figured out how I want to do that yet, but yeah. we are potentially moving that direction. Cool. Any thoughts of throwing that in the cloud? Probably not. Okay. I like keeping the platform on hardware I can play with myself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just think our customers, that's a value proposition, right? Like to be able to have physical security over it, to be able to have the platform security over it. Um, it it's a ownership thing to be able to say that you're running and managing it. And if something goes wrong, there's no middleman, right? There's no cloud provider to have to worry about. So yeah. Yeah. Right on. Um, so come May, you're done. Uh, yep. you've, you've already secured a job. Can you talk a little bit about what the future looks like for you with the new job? Yeah, so I'm a uh, operational excellence engineer now for um, Amazon Web Services. And uh, what it essentially boils down to, I wear many hats within the organization. So I'm responsible for both software engineering, systems engineering, and operations. And it's very cool because it gives me a broad, one of the things I've always wanted out of a long-term career is to not be pigeonholed into purely software or purely systems, but to have a mix over both and really be able to incorporate like operations and day-to-day -day business practices in addition to the technology. And so um, as a operational excellence engineer is my uh, like face title, but it really falls into a role called systems development engineer. And the cool thing about that title is you have both the word systems and the word development in the same title. Um, and so I'm basically building a lot of tooling that allows Amazon to um, kind of have continuous improvement, be continuously um, getting better and better at raising the bar for the, the reliability, failover, continuous delivery of new products and services. And so um, the region that you saw that went down last Tuesday for S3 uh, is the US East One region, and that is uh, a region I support. Um, so it's people like me who are on the, have our, our necks out on the line for getting better and better at not having issues like that in the future. Uh, but it's a fantastic environment. It really has brought together a lot of skills I've gained both as a computer scientist and in the information security space to be able to design and prototype systems end to end that are both providing valuable business to the environment and are secure in doing so. And so it's very exciting. Um, one of the cool things about this role is that they really treat you like the CEO of your own startup. So it's like um, you have total ownership and responsibility over what you're building and what you're prototyping and you get to do it end to end and see through the vision. And so that's uh, an aspect of the Amazonian culture that I really value and uh, has been really exciting for me to work with. 
Yeah. So with an incident like last Tuesday, does that ripple through the organization? As the fix comes, does that ripple through the organization? So every single region gets to take advantage of kind of a discovery there. Yeah. You know? So it's like really interesting. I'll I'll get on my soapbox for a minute, but um, like one of the things a lot of people who aren't familiar with like cloud technology um, don't realize is that the sites and services that went down because S3 went down in that one region they went down because they weren't taking advantage of either multiple regions with a load balancer or multiple availability zones. So like, even though S3 was down in US East one, which is one of the critical and it's both the, it's the longest running region, right? Cause this is where AWS got started. Most popular. And, yeah. And it's where we push all of our newest features to. So like, if you want to be on the bleeding edge of what the newest release of EC2 or S3 is, you want to deploy your services in the US East one region first, because that's where you're going to get your, your newest stuff coming out. And um, so the stuff that goes down, they have all their eggs in that US East basket and they didn't put anything else in the other stuff. So it wasn't that Amazon's like, redundancy failover model is broken. No, it's just that those organizations were like those, I call them the large, small organizations. They're very popular among the technology community, but they're not paying the bucks to be in multiple regions and be split over with a load balancer. That being said, one of the most impressive things about Amazon that I've found in my short time is the ability to mobilize an entire organization on the whim of, okay, S3 just went down in US East 1, and there's a very like what people might see as chaos of like, oh, 20% of websites affected by S3 on the outside. On the inside, it runs like a fine-tuned machine. Um, and, th and that's not BS and feathers. That's really like I, I was genuinely impressed when I saw hundreds of engineers pouring onto a, a call bridge to start triaging these issues. It was done with professionalism. The communication lines were clear. Protocol was followed to the T. And it really is a test and a measurement of like the strength of the Amazonian culture to say that when we have a core issue like this, that was like, yes, what caused it was pretty bad, right? It was a typo um, where someone was actually trying to improve the speed of the billing system and ended up taking out a larger cluster that then caused them to have to restart all of S3 and the way that S3 got restarted, there were some unexpected things because guess what? S3 hasn't had a cold reboot, so to speak, in that region in like a long, 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 long time. So um, it's actually pretty incredible that for that scale and magnitude of issue, they were able to recover in a period of four hours and have, you know, continuity of service. Um, so that's that was pretty cool for me to see. And one of the other cool things about the environment is that we never make the same mistake twice. And I, I mean that. So like, even though this issue happened and it was significant and customer impacting, we're very serious about driving to the ground. What were the root causes, not just the effects. So we write full corrections of errors and we really triage and, and data dump what happened. And, um, you know, if, if something happens again in terms of an outage, it won't be because of the issue that happened in this last one. It will be processes and, and people will be changed in a way that prevents this from happening. So it's nice because the culture and the environment allows people to learn and adapt very quickly. No, it's cool. It's cool. We'll, we'll stay in touch with you as you work in, in that uh, environment and talk about what you can 
talk about. By the way, I was going back and looking the date. Uh, the last time I had John, it was actually a year. We were right. It was December of 2015 that we celebrated the five-year anniversary of, yeah. of Home Gadget Geeks. And uh, that was actually show number, I had it, show number 239 uh, is when we did that and yeah. uh, celebrate 300 today. Can you talk, uh, where, where, where are the Maple Grove uh, Studios going to, you, you've been in a dorm the last four years, yeah. uh, update on the Maple Grove Studios. Yeah, so I'm moving out to uh, Northern Virginia, and uh, so that's kind of going to be where I build out my next studio. I uh, have crashed on a, uh, I picked up a two-bedroom, two-bathroom pad, and I'm pretty excited about that. So I'm going to buy the max internet package I possibly can and uh, get some professional stuff really set up to be able to do some studio work, and it's exciting. You won't have to look at a dorm backdrop anymore. Yeah, and that's um, actually close to GMU where we do some recruiting, so maybe uh, yeah. maybe we have to head by the studios and take advantage of that extra room that's in there. Absolutely. Yeah, so <laughs> I uh, I got the extra space so people can drop in and out and uh, not be strangers, you know? So Yeah. What about Cyber Frontiers? Uh, certainly, uh, what do you think? What's the future of Cyber Frontiers, you and I? Yeah, talking about that, where do we go with that? When we first did the podcast, it was designed to be um, the show from the academic perspective because I was here on campus. And I think that that vision has evolved and yet stayed the same. So, I mean, I always look at things from a very kind of empirical and academic background. And then I, I kind of move to the middle on where it meets the technology and the industry. And I'd like to keep it that way. I think um, as we see the way security is making every headline every day, um, I think what people thought was going to be a boring podcast for the average guy four years ago, or, oh, no, we started this only two years ago, but I mean, just in the realm of us podcasting together, security was not really a thing the average guy thought about nearly as much. The extent of which security was thought about for the average guy was, do I have good virus protection? And I think now that people see it on like front page news so often, we're going to have a lot of opportunity to really bring a cultural side of it. And so I'm trying to line up the right people to be able to talk to that. Um, it can be very difficult sometimes to have academics speak to that because sometimes they get really academic and people don't want to hear that. Um, so I try and find the balance of people who have background and training in those things, but can kind of speak to it in a more natural and cultural way. So that's kind of, I think, the spin I want to keep taking with it. Um, I've certainly been unable to be consistent in productions and shows and like, I, in, in all fairness, I think that's a disclaimer that people got up front. So I don't really have any shame in that. Um, but I think I'll have an opportunity to maybe smooth that out and make it a little bit more consistent and give it some vision uh, going forward. Um, and my branding as an individual, Christian Johnson, um, could be changing in the next year. So, uh, you know, I might look into things like, uh, I, I don't know if anyone like frequently reads Amazon stuff, but there are a lot of uh, senior engineers at Amazon who run their own blog and talk about Amazon technologies. So I might be getting a little bit more involved in the evangelism side of that technology. And uh, I might try and integrate some of that. I just got to wait and see how some of that shakes out. Yeah, that'd be good. I think you're you're in a good spot. We'll continue to, to morph that as we move along. I Actually, I like the lack of pressure of having to produce those all the time. Not that I 
don't like that as part of Home Gadget Geeks. You know, I'm I'm really committed to every week that I possibly can to get these out. We've got one, two, three, four. We have six already lined up through 306 at this point coming up and, and some regulars coming back and some new folks. But um, I kind of like, you know, we have some spurts and we go a while and it's just kind of fun. to. So you don't want to you don't want to um, unsubscribe from that, I guess, if, if you're a regular to Cyber Frontiers. We got to get Christian's going to be super busy over the next uh, couple weeks, months, maybe two months as we get him graduating out of school and moved and all those things uh, kind of put in place as we think about as we think about yeah. that. Yeah, and you know the other thing too, I, I we probably should have dropped it in the Cyber Frontiers feed. So I was out at RSA conference um, about two weeks ago, oh, maybe even more than that now. Yeah, two two and a half weeks ago. Anyway, um, I did a segment on RSA TV live, um, talking briefly about my experience out there as a sponsored security scholar. Um, I did a poster session on all the cybersecurity related research I've been working on at campus over the past three years in um, dynamic reconfiguration, active defense technologies, and predictive learning models for malware. And uh, that was a fantastic time. It was really a nice culminating experience for a lot of the many things I've been doing in the security space. And um, one of the things that was just really cool uh, was being able to, I mean, I sat down and had dinner with, with the guys who sat and wrote the RSA algorithm at MIT um, way back then. And, you know, sitting in the first like big security class I ever took, like foundational text, reading the paper on the RSA algorithm and how encryption works. And like, now you're sitting here having dinner with the guys who wrote it. Um, just that kind of stuff really brought it to a head for me. I love getting the opportunity to talk to people who really have been the visionaries and the pioneers in the space. Um, and so, you know, I got to talk with the CTO of CrowdStrike and and, and uh, Teresa Payton, who Jim has actually interviewed on um, Prairie News, I think. Yeah, one of the well, it's yeah. When I what did I do? I did I even I might have even played her here. Yeah, I think so. I, I, think I don't exactly the, remember the feed. But. She was the CIO of the White House for a while. Yeah, at the time, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, now she runs her own security company. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of cool people who I had the opportunity to talk and interact with and get some validation on and the types of technologies I've been exploring. And, like, this is a part of me that um, as I'm at Amazon, I will continue to be a security evangelist. So that's not going away. And it's great having that be a part of my background, uh, and be part of the cloud space going forward and really to be able to continue to talk about it on the podcast, because I think it's going to be more and more, um, consumers and average, um, technology consumers are going to be thinking with a security mindset. I actually, I believe that as much as I have had pessimism in the past about, how much people actually care about things like security and privacy. Um, I think people are getting hammered and inundated with it so much that even if they might not do anything about it, they're going to know a lot more about the field than they did um, several years ago. So uh, maybe maybe we'll drop the uh, the link from RSA in the in the feed as a as a backfill uh, over the next couple of weeks. But uh, yeah, those are those are things I'll be bringing forward as well. Yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll, it doesn't look like, I thought I had published that one with Teresa uh, on on my feed and that may have just stayed out as a YouTube video. So, yeah. you know, it's funny at the time, I didn't even think about it. I, you know, she was CIO of the White House. And we talked about some great stuff. And then you ping me via Skype, like, hey, you interviewed Teresa Payton? And uh, I was like, yeah, I didn't think that was that big of a deal, but uh, apparently maybe it was. So maybe yeah. we can 
pull that one forward as well. And not, not too much has changed. I think that was just, that wasn't yeah. that long ago that actually that video landed on her, on her press page. Right. And you know, I do these things at the conferences. I don't think they're always that great, but she must've thought it was good enough to showcase on her press page. So maybe that's something we should, um, we should pull forward as well. Christian, you were, you were mentioning just kind of average guy security stuff coming up. And I'd mentioned early on as we were talking off show, lots of things listening to us these days. And I don't think, you know, with all the stuff that went on last year with, with the monitoring or two years ago with the monitoring of phone and some of those other things, I really pushed back. I thought most people overreacted like, eh, it's not that big of a deal. Um, I, I think we've got some questions to ask ourselves. And when we think about, you know, these kinds of devices, which, you know, I mentioned to you, uh, you know, I had a little scare with prostate cancer and I hadn't said anything to it and it popped up in my Facebook stream. Hey, struggling with, you know, prostate issues. And I thought, holy, I'm this my Facebook feed. Yeah. I'm like, geez, is Facebook listening to me on this no, thing? They're probably either looking at your search history or, yeah. or your inbox or, you know, any number of things. So. True, true. All those things going on. But uh, it's interesting. We have a lot of things listening to us these days. And and so it's uh, pretty, pretty interesting what the future holds. And I think it's going to be important that we talk about it and uh, and we see what, you know, we see what, because it's, it's a tough, that's a, it's one of those tough deals because, Certainly, the more information they gather, the better stuff they can feed to us. And yet, you know, you know. So, well, good, Christian. Great to catch up with you. Always good to have you on. And uh, always good to, to kind of catch up in what's going on there with you. Hard to believe we have made the four-year coming up on the, well, not quite four years, but pretty close to when we started all this. I mean, it was four years ago, almost to the day a month or so short of that, that we were just doing that show about college. If you getting into college, yeah, I don't, um, I can't believe we've done this for four years. That's kind of crazy to think back. Like, um, of course, if you would have asked me on show number one, you, me, Andrew, and Brian, I think is in show number one. If we were going to make 300 shows, yeah. <laughs> I would, yeah. I would have probably said you're, you're crazy. Uh, you're, you're, yeah, you're pretty crazy. I've had a lot of favorite. Let me just reminisce on this for a second as we think about 300 and we'll close it out. I've had a lot of great moments uh, here as we, as I think about it. And then they, I think they all revolve around the guests, you guys, Christian, you certainly, you know, we've had this hour long conversation just catching up with you and we get to have that because we, uh, you know, we've been doing this. I think back Zadler, who I tried to have on tonight. Um, Zadler was a big part of the early days. Um, of course, I mentioned Andrew. We've had tons of guests, and it's hard for me to just start going through them because I would leave them out. Many of you are in the community. I've had many of you on that are still listening. We've had a lot of great guests around uh, about around enterprise stuff. I think of we've had some media players. We've had media fire. We think about you know we think about some cloud storage. We uh, Edward is coming back on, but Edward Weininger is coming back on. We talked about Bitcoin. Holy cow! Talk about like I thought Bitcoin would be gone by now, dude. That thing is rocking. Like um, not only is it rocking, but um, smart contracts is the next thing to watch for and how smart contracts integrate with Bitcoin. Jump up um, on that mic for me, would you? 
Just come yeah, a little bit closer. Sorry about that. No. Um, okay. So, um, yeah, how smart contracts integrate with um, Bitcoin and effectively start to replace lawyers, right? And having digital contracts that when certain clauses are reached in the contract, things happen automatically to satisfy the contract. It's a bizarre world. Um, we are moving in a world where financial transactions, even though they are more, you know, in some ways, blockchain makes it more anonymous. In some ways, it, it makes accountability go up. And um, I can tell you with high degrees of uh, certainty that uh, the federal government is seriously looking at how do we integrate these technologies in a, from a regulatory standpoint and um, what are the implications of doing so? So I think how we handle money is going to be one of the biggest ways that we change our country, actually. Um, and I don't mean that from a spending standpoint. I mean that literally from like a, when money becomes more accountable and becomes digital and we actually say there's no more paper bills, there's no more printing money, there's no more coin, it's all digital. Um, all your transactions can be validated. Um, it it could do a lot to eliminate these black market, these black money markets where cash and drugs and a lots of illegal contraband can go into a void because the, the money can't be followed. Um, and so now that we're moving to this digital contracts world, I really think that something as strange as how we do currency could have huge implications on how we live our lives. And, um, yeah, Bitcoin, I think, uh, is not the fad that people thought it was going to be. I think yeah. people thought it was a fad because you could mine Bitcoins and make absurd money and then cash it back to U.S. and peace out. But um, the half-life for mining Bitcoin has long since gone. The profit motive is, is gone and uh, the adoption rate is high. So it's an impressive feat what they've done. I really think that's a... That has been a, u a unique discriminator as we talk about 21st century technologies. I think Bitcoin will definitely be in the history books for that. Yeah, when we first had Edward on, it was in the low 300s. Mm -hmm. Today, it closed at 1200 Yeah. $1,207.27. And that's nuts. That's nuts. Because <laughs> I can remember a time when Paul Allen and I were talking about trading Bitcoins at 600 per share versus 300 per share. And I mean, now it's just out yeah. of control. Well, yeah. if you would have bought Bitcoin the time, if yeah. when, the first time I had Edward on the show, it was 300, I think 328. And it had just dipped a little bit. And Edward said, Jim, this is a mathematical equation. It's going to grow in value. Like, that's the way it is. If this works the way it's supposed to, it will grow in value. And he said all those things you just said, you know, about, you know, there are, you can mine it, but most people don't do that on their own anymore, right? They're miners, right? They're, they're doing those kinds of things. And so it, it's it, all those things, I, you know, when Edward first came in, I, I thought it was kind of like, this was kind of a weird thing. And now it's becoming a system that is, it's funny how the things, that we, the, the things that we find weird at first become the most profitable and the most widely used 10 years later. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I just, I remember thinking, and if you go back to those podcasts, you'll see me change over time. It's because it, I was kind of like, okay, what is this Bitcoin gimmick? And uh, and now it's it's a super legit, you know, financial transaction system. It's got a lot of great things about it. Now it's, yeah. it has become the, the source of payment for ransomware, <laughs> but <Sorry. laughs> there's, there's that, right? There's always a, 
opportunity yeah. in every uh, in every situation. So, Christian, thanks for catching up with us and uh, stay around for a little bit of post show. We'll remind everyone if you want to financially support Home Gadget Geeks, you can do that with the Patreon link. We got one in five dollar plans out there. Head out to theaverageguy.tv slash support and click on the Patreon link uh, that's out there, or just theaverageguy.tv, and uh, get signed up for that. Don't forget, you can contact me via email if you got a question or you got a guest idea or you want to have somebody on or you know somebody that should be on. Send me an email, jim at theaverageguy.tv. Many of you tracked me down on Twitter. appreciate that at Jay Collison. And don't forget the theaverageguy.tv platform, both web and media hosting powered by Maple Grove Partners. We talked a ton about it tonight. Really no reason not to do it if you're thinking about web hosting. Great way to do it. Like Christian said, we try to keep it in the community. We don't advertise much outside of that. I advertise it here on the show, but we do try to keep it in our community a little bit. And so if you're looking for high-speed, reliable hosting from people you know and you trust, head out to Maple Grove Partners, all one word, dot com. You can also listen to Home Gadget Geeks on our Android or iPhone app if you haven't done that yet, homegadgetgeeks.com. We'll thank LastPass for their continued second year worth of support and some changes going on. We'll have Amber coming back here in May to talk about some of the new changes at LastPass and their great sponsors. So we have them on as we can to uh, to just kind of keep things up to date. We appreciate their sponsorship of the show. We are live every Thursday, 8 p.m. Central, 9 Eastern, out at TheAverageGuy.tv. I mentioned Edward's coming back. He's coming back in two weeks. Mike and Mark are coming on. Remember the Barbecue Guys, super popular show? Coming on, they've both gotten into drones. So we'll have them on talking about some of the 4K content they are creating with their drones and uh, some cool stuff. We'll probably even have some video maybe or something running that night to make sure we've got some examples of it. Some pretty cool stuff. And then in April, April 13th, we'll have a good look at the creator's update for Windows 10. And Rich Hay is coming back. And Rich Hay is all things Microsoft, if you follow him over at Windows Observer. So Rich will come on and update us on all the things that are going on here in Windows 10. Of course, I'm a Windows Insider MVP as well. And so Rich and I will talk about that. We'll have an update on Windows 10. I will hope you will join us. Well, 300 in the books. Hard to believe. 300. I have never done Christian 300 of anything in my life. Boom. 300 in the books. And uh, here's to 300 more. We'll see if we can do it for, (laughs) that would be another six years from now. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes, and uh, we'll only do it if you guys keep listening. So, come out and join us live if you're listening to the recorded version. For those of you who are listening live, thanks. For many of you have actually, as I look out there, many of you have been here since the beginning. And so, if you've been, if you've joined us since the beginning, uh, thanks. Thanks for listening. Join us live again. We're we're live every Thursday, 8 p.m. Central, 9 Eastern. TV slash forward slash live. And with that, we'll say good night. Good night.